0: Welcome to the Black College Sports and Education Foundation weekly podcast, where we equip students, athletes, their families, and supporters with vital tools and information that will impact their decisions on educational opportunities and careers. Tune in every Thursday night at 7 Eastern Standard Time as we host prominent guests from a variety of backgrounds, such as education, sports, medicine, and the corporate world. Remember, the Black College Sports and Education Foundation is your one-stop resource center. Now here's your host, Gil McGregor.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Gil McGregor and I get a chance to welcome you today to our podcast. You know, in our name you see the word legends. Well, today you're going to get a chance to hear from one of those legends. I'm as thrilled as I can be. In fact, just a little bit giddy, I must admit, that I have a person that we're going to be talking to that when you talk about rings and you hear all the NBA players talking about they want a ring, well, he don't have any more fingers because he got 10 of them. And you hear teams that they talk about, well, this could be the next dynasty. Well, the next dynasty hasn't happened yet because he played on the real dynasty. I'm talking about great guards from the dynasty – that was and still is the Boston Celtics. Please welcome with me, Mr. Sam
2: Jones.
1: Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Good morning, Thank
2: you. Good morning Gil. Great. Thanks for that great introduction, but I always tell everybody my blood is red. I'm a human being, <laughs> and anything that I have accomplished and gotten this thing legend is the people who made me that and not me. Well, I appreciate that. I wouldn't expect you to say anything different.
1: Your blood is red, your team was green, and them low-cut shoes was black. Now, where did, <laughs> where did you talk the idea about wearing them low-cut black tennis shoes?
2: Yeah, let me tell you something. I hated those tennis shoes. They look <laughs> they they actually look awful. And I wanted to be like the other teams wear white, as you know, back in those days, was on the converse. They had pro kids, but... They didn't make it to the NBA. <laughs> I looked at all the other teams, and I thought they looked so good in those white converse. And so I wanted a pair, but Red Auerbach said no. And when Red Auerbach says no, you can forget it.
1: Well, now, that you made that statement, which is bringing me to a couple of things I want to ask. First, I want to find out your basketball trip before it was in Black Low Cuts from Wilmington, North Carolina, Larnberg Institute. In fact, if we're gonna call somebody else from Wilmington, North Carolina MJ, why didn't we call you SJ? No, I don't listen.
2: Gil, <laughs> Gil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They got it backwards. Yeah. It's all backwards, Gil. I was actually okay. born I was born in Larnberg, North Carolina. You were born and in Larnberg. Where, Yeah, Larnberg Institute is in Larnberg, North Carolina. And I want everyone to know that it, my mother went to Larnberg Institute. And I want everyone to know that it was not just a boarding school. A lot of people thought it was for kids who were juvenile delinquents. <laughs> and <laughs> listen, Larnberg is history because of the fact there was no school for blacks to uh, attend in Laurenburg, North Carolina, and some of the surrounding areas, like Rayburn, North Carolina, Gibson, North Carolina, Laurel Hill, North Carolina. All of these kids had to come to Laurenburg Institute, and it was paid for by the state if you lived in North Carolina because they did not want to build a school for blacks to get an education. And this is the truth, and I want people to know this.
1: I know Bishop McDuffie very well, Mr. Frank's son. So I'm from Rayford, North Carolina. We, we homeboys, whether you know it or
2: not. <laughs> well, we actually are homeboys because it, it's just a little north of Larnberg, North Carolina, because I had to go through Rayburn to get to Rayford. <laughs> 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 and from Rayford, I went to Fayetteville. <laughs> That's
1: right. That's right. Now, hey, you hey, see, you ain't mentioned Maxton. You didn't mention Maxton. Well, Maxton
2: actually had a high school. My uncle taught at that high school. And that's why I didn't mention Max in North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, that was the only reason. Me this. Let
1: me ask you this, Sam. With, yeah. with the recent NBA champions being crowned and they're out of Toronto, Canada, and a lot of people may not have known that the first NBA game that was ever played was played in Toronto, Canada. And a lot of people don't know that Mr. Naismith was from Canada. But they also might not know that your coach at Central Donnie Mac, Mister McClendon, was a disciple of the man who invented the game. What kinds not, of
2: lessons did you get from your coach while you were at Central? I'd like to tell you this: I study history, and I had a chance to talk to my coach, uh, Coach McClendon, who came to Larnedburg. It is Buick, and said you're going to North Carolina College. That was the name. Just like of- that. Just like they said, you're going to North Carolina College. Now, being recruited by Coach Gaines in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and a fellow named uh, Coach Harris at A&T. And so he came and picked me up in the summer, took me to the campus. Now, we're not under NCAA rules back in those days, because we were were segregated, so I was not going to go to a white school in North Carolina, South Carolina, or anywhere below the Mason-Dixon line, so he came and got me, but people don't know that my mother lived right on the next street behind Coach McLendon, so she (laughs) helped recruit me to North Carolina College at that time, which is now North Carolina Central University. And he said, I have a son at Larnberg Institute who you should look to play for you. And we had played a lot of games at North Carolina Central during Coach Mike's tenure. We played their JVs, and we beat them every time, (laughs) yo. Because the JV team was who I played with. I played a kid named Tex Harrison. Yes. Yeah, I played with Tex. I played against him. He was a year ahead of me and we beat them every time. So that helped a lot in my recruitment for North Carolina College at that particular time. And Coach Mack was the last, I'm going to say, disciple. He had classes under the founder. Yes, of Boston, yes. At Kansas. Now,
1: my coaching college, uh, you would know Billy Packer.
2: Yes, I Billy do Packer very well.
1: Said, Billy Packer said that if you take the five top coaches in basketball ever. He said, I don't care what the other four names with Knight might be. They they could be Wooten, they could be Rupp, they could be Arbat, they could be anybody. He said, but that fifth name has to be John McClendon. That's how highly regarded his coaching ability was held by my coach, Billy Packer. How do you feel about having played for a red Arbat legendary and having played for John McClendon? Do you see him at that that epicenter of, of coaching hierarchy that we're talking about?
2: Well, first of all, Gil, I think that Coach Mac made it so easy for me to be accepted by the Celtics because everything, oh, that the, oh. the, everything that the Celtics were running at that particular time, I had all that under Coach McLendon. Even before, I'm going to tell you the truth, they talk about the four corners. I ran the four corners in 1951 when I first went Whoa. to college. That was Coach McLendon. I ran the fast break under Coach McLennan. He had his kids run every morning about five miles, and he would be the one at the halfway point checking off the names of those who were running. <laughs> so, And that was a way of getting us up to make sure we went to class in the morning. So you get up, you run, you come back, you run, you get to the shower, you go eat, and you go to class because you're up. Wow. The transition from Coach McLendon to the Celtics was so easy because of the condition that he had us in before I went to the Celtics. Now, the big difference, uh, uh, Jill, Okay. okay. I, never heard, I never heard Coach Mack use profanity. And I knew him for 50 years. Never heard him say anything like damn or anything during his coaching tenure. Never heard it. And I wanted him to get angry. Now, when I got the Red, when I got the Red Auerbach, the devil came out. <laughs> but, but no matter what he said, every player who played for Coach Mack and every player who played for Red Auerbach loved them. Loved them like they were a father to us.
1: When you talk about your years at North Carolina Central or North Carolina, Carolina
2: Teachers College or TC. Don't I mean, give well, me no whatever. teachers. Don't give me no Teachers College. It's oh, North oh, Carolina good. College. It started. It started the, that off before we, let's get it right. It started off before we were born as North Carolina College for Negroes.
1: For Negroes, that's exactly right. <laughs> but you brought the Eagle Funk to him, right? I know about the Eagle Funk. <laughs> no, 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 no. That came after me. That was for you, young guys. Okay. <laughs> But tell me about the educational preparation you got at North Carolina Central and what your major was and if the NBA was in your windshield early on in college or if that's something that really started coming later on.
2: Well, let me go with your first question. Your first question was about an education. Yes. Well, I thought when I attended Lombard Institute, I had an English teacher that made us use proper English. The do's and the don'ts and the does, when you're supposed to use it, If you didn't use it right, they corrected you in a nice way. The McDuffies did a tremendous job for all of us who were growing up in the state of North Carolina that attended Lombard Institute. And for many of us, probably if it wasn't for Mr. Frank McDuffie, who you know very well, we would not have gone to college. Wow. They put us on the right road. We took the English, we took the math, we took the foreign language. And when I got ready to go to college, there were a few things I was missing, but not a lot. When I got to North Carolina, I began to meet all of these people that were coming from different states. I did it at Lawrence Institute because it was a boarding school. That's why we had such a good team. I met people from New Jersey and people from New York and people from Massachusetts and people from Philadelphia. It was a different attitude than just going with kids you grew up with. These were people who were coming from different parts of the world. They spoke a different language than we did. Oh,
1: yeah.
2: yeah. We we had that Southern talk, and they had that Northern (laughs) talk, and and we even got some from the Midwest of Chicago. And the one that came from Boston, we didn't understand anything. He was saying he looked like us. He looked like us, but he didn't speak like us. (laughs) But, But anyway, when I got to North Carolina College, Coach Mack just told us, he said, now there are certain teachers you don't want to get in their classes because they are rough, and they believe that you should speak the English language like it should be spoken. And I never will forget one was named Mrs. Newton. Now, we spell it N-E-W-T-O-N. Now, we were known to pronounce that as Miss Newton.
1: Yes, indeed. (laughs)
2: And the first day I went to her class, I said I'm looking for Miss Newton. And she sat me down in further class and she says, My name is not Miss Newton class. My name is Miss Newton. And I've never forgotten that. So (laughs) well, you can pronounce your name any way you want to. And you have to respect that. So I did, but she scared me to death. So I didn't want to miss I didn't want to miss
1: any of her classes. <laughs> now you're on campus and you let all four years, you all CI double for three years, you average double double your senior year. Now it's looking like I guess somebody saw that this is gonna be a possibility of an NBA career. How did you approach that and how were you approached
2: by different people about that? Well, when I got drafted, you back in those days we had to draft in the army. And yes, Gil, you got to think about this. I had never been in the NBA arena. I had never seen an NBA game in person until I was drafted by the Celtics. But Minneapolis drafted you first, though, right? Yeah, but they drafted me while I was in service and had one more year to go to school. Now, this is how it all happened. I was the assistant coach of a team at White Sands Proving Grounds in New Mexico. The coach made me an assistant coach. And it was the first time they ever had a basketball team in that area. And so we went and played some of the colleges. And I remember playing Texas Tech, JV, because back in those days, freshmen couldn't play varsity basketball. Exactly. And I remember playing against New Mexico State. When I was about to get out to Army, they offered me a full ride at New Mexico State, which was in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Cruces. Los <laughs> Las Cruces. Las Cruces. Not only that did they offer me a full ride, they said if I had a girlfriend or a wife, they would give her a scholarship. All right,
1: now.
2: Now, they must have seen something in me that I didn't see in myself, that I could bring somebody along with me. But I wanted to come back to North Carolina College to finish my degree. But in the meantime, I played against Frank Ramsey, who was my teammate with the Celtics for about six or seven years. I played against him in the Army. I played against Al Bianchi, who played with the Syracuse Nationals. He was in the Army. I played against Bobby Leonard, who was an All-American at Indiana University. And he was in the Army. And Frank Selby had just gotten shipped out, the first guy to score 100 points. And he had just gotten shipped out, so I didn't get a chance to play against Frank Selby. And so Bobby Leonard saw something in me because we had the best eight teams from the Army that year to play in this tournament. And I was the MVP. Okay. And I didn't know who these guys were at all. (laughs) These guys had already played professional basketball. I didn't know who they were. But we had played on different teams. So anyway, Bobby Lillard asked me if I would like to play professional basketball. I never thought about it. And I didn't give it any thought then, really. He said, well, I think you can play. And he wrote to a person in Minneapolis. And they drafted me while I was in service. Wow. And I wrote them a letter saying that I'm going to return to college. And if they were interested after I got my degree, I would love to play for Minneapolis. And that's where I left it. And there was a coach by the name of John Conva. Back in those days, Gil, coaches did everything. They were general yeah, managers. Yeah. They didn't have assistant coaches. <laughs> 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 it That's what they did. I guess they didn't have the money. So anyway, by senior year, we had a pretty good year. We won the conference but lost in the CIA championship. The tournament. The state. Yeah, the tournament, and we, we won the conference. I had a good year, and I found out that something had never been done before. Now, you may not know this. I was the first African-American drafted in the first round by the Boston Celtics. Yes. I was the first African-American drafted in the first round in any sports of all the black institutions. Wow. And I didn't realize that. Someone told me this. And I had no idea who the Boston Celtics were. <laughs> I didn't know a soul. I didn't know anyone on the Celtics. And so it was terrifying to be put in that position. But at the same time I was thinking, because of my maturity, that I felt like Jackie Robinson. If I make good with the Celtics, it meant that now the NBA would go into the black colleges because we were not on TV and start looking at that's black players. And a few years later, four years later, they drafted Cleo Hill from Winston-Salem State, yes. number one. And then a few years after that came Earl Monroe, number yes. one. So it began to trickle down and I felt that because of my success, it trickled down and they started looking at players in Division Two basketball.
1: Sam, that's what, it's all about, and to hear you give that chronology and also your thought process, plan it forward, that's what we want people to understand and hear. The genius of you, what you got from John McClendon, what you got from the armed forces, that you could take that into a situation. That's a funny situation. Boston Celtics, and I was talking to a good friend of mine. I'm going to drop a name. I'm dropping Peter Vesey's name down. I said to Peter Vesey, what I don't understand about how people looked at boston i guess the winning made it difficult for a lot of people to pull for boston because they were always winning but boston had you and mr bill russell and casey jones and then there were a lot of people who seemed to act like there were nobody black playing for the celtics but there was and i never understood the balance between people not liking the celtics because boston was considered such a kind of a racist city and the fact that the celtics had black players who were significant on that team, how those two things never matched up. Did you feel that representing the city of Boston as a black athlete in the pros?
2: Did that pressure ever get to you or you ever felt it? Well, Gil, doesn't get to people who are raised in the South. People who are raised in the South knows about segregation. Now, yes, Boston had its spots and I'll give it to you. You had the African-Americans who lived in Roxbury You had the Irish who lived in Boston. You had the Italians who lived in their section. And you had the Jewish people who lived in their section. During those times, those were the four major, major ethnic groups. And they sort of lived in their own sections. And there were very few that were integrated. You had a few. You had Chinatown now, which was very small. But there were very few Hispanics that was living there back in the 50s. And you could tell that some places you went, they looked at you quite funny, but do you think you really belong here? Okay. Oh, yeah. You got to understand, Boston was one of the last to bring in a black player for baseball. But what's funny, they were also the first to draft a black player in the NBA. They also were the first to start five black players in any sport. And they also were the first to hire a black coach, which was Bill Russell. Yeah. So they had a lot of firsts, and let me go a little further. The first black player in hockey was Willie O'Ree <laughs> for <laughs> the Boston <laughs> Bruins. For the Boston that, Bruins. Sam, that's a great one, because I would
1: think that he might still be the first, but I know he's not, but but, but I hear you. Wow.
2: But they supported The only thing wrong, they actually supported sports. That's what bothered me, because I remember going to Russell. I says, Russell, do you see what is happening here? In 1964, Tommy Heisen got hurt, and Halvacek was playing so great. I thought he would be Tommy Heisen's substitute. Red Arback reached back and got Willie Knowles, who had came up from the Knicks and started five black players in 1964. Wow. And when you look up in the stands... Who are the people that are supporting (laughs) the Celtics? They're mostly whites. At least 95% are supporting our team. And Red all did things that were so different. Yeah, you could see it blatantly. They accepted us in a different way.
1: Now, have you had a chance to look at any Bob Cousy's book, The Last Pass,
2: where he talked? Oh, I read the book. You know, I read it. I still talk to Cousy Cousy's. Ninety years old. You know he was my coach. No, I, I was didn't a, know
1: that. I was at Cincinnati the second year he was there, and he was my coach. So you and I have a touch point. Did you coach. play with Tiny Archibald? I played with Tiny the year Tiny uh, led the league in scoring and assists. I played with Tiny and jumping Johnny Green <laughs> from the Knicks, who came from the Knicks. I played with Johnny Green, Sam Lacy, Norm the Storm, Van Leer. Those were my teammates. Oh man, you had you, had, you know what you had a pretty good teammates, yeah, yeah, yes, you did. Now, did you see what Coozy said? He failed to see. He said he didn't think he was as good a teammate as he could have been because he wasn't aware of the social weight that was on the shoulders of Russell during those years. Did you see him feel that way as you laid the Kuzey uh, and Russell, Kuzey and the team?
2: No, I I did not. That's why we're still friends. (laughs) No, No, I did not. In fact, uh, I really enjoyed playing with Kuzi. I had a great time because I knew that if I got open, he was going to get me the ball. That's what he did best. And I don't think he was going to pass any more to Shaman or any more to Heinzel. I thought that he spreaded the ball where the shots were needed. And he knew where everybody shot from. And... Red just told me if Kuzey ever passes me the ball, I got to shoot it. I don't care who's okay. open up under the basket. And so I learned early to do just what Red said. And so I got the ball many, many times from Kuzey, and we have remained friends all of these years. And I started—I met him in 1957, my rookie year. And I called him one day before his 90th birthday, and he says, "Give me another day." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but he and Russell, I guess they were a little bit distant because it's like you see now, Gil. Everybody wants to be the leader of the team. I feel like Durant may leave Golden State because of Curry. It's always going to be Curry's team. And I think he's looking for a team, but he's one great player. And then you got Kyrie Irving who may want to leave Boston because he wants to be the man. And Kyrie can be. But right now, Boston doesn't have a leader. And I think that's what hurt them in the playoffs, that no one could be the second coach like Bill Russell or like Bob Cousy. Now, we knew while we were winning championships. Okay. We rode Bill Russell. We rode on the back of Bill Russell. He carried every one of us, even though for six years it was Bob Cousy's team. When I'm saying I played six years with Bob Cousy, those six years was Bob Cousy's team. Okay. Even though to win championship it was Bill Russell. <laughs> they never won a championship until they got Bill Russell. I think he made a statement. He said the
1: only thing that I know remained the same on every championship was me. <laughs> 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 he said they said they did a lot of changes and said the only thing that was the same on every championship thing was me. Which brings me to the point. When, when you see players up today, Do you see players, you mentioned a few of them by name, do you see players of today that could have been a Celtic, could have been on those championship teams that you were on, that you admire as a player when you look at them and how they
2: play in today's NBA? Yeah, I do. I look at Tim Duncan, and I thought that he could have played for the Celtics and been a tremendous ball player. The guy that we really missed out on was Willis Reed, and I think we had a chance of getting Willis. He came out of Grambling University. And he was our first podcast guest,
1: Sam. It's interesting you mentioned him. Willis
2: and I worked together down in New Orleans. did little assisting basketball coach down in New Orleans too, did you?
1: Yes, I did.
2: I couldn't understand why they would hire Elgin Baylor and me after they had chosen all of the players.
1: <laughs> Could have us thought y'all were gonna play. That's why. <laughs> well,
2: no, but at least they should have given us. We, we knew all the players, and we knew what they should have gotten. Yes, yes. And they chose a terrible team, and they gave up four first rounds. Four now for Pete Maravich. Now I can understand
1: well, yeah.
2: Atlanta wanted to get rid of Pete because of his mm-hmm. talent They should have given two first rounds and two third rounds. But they wanted Pete so badly, and Atlanta knew this,
1: that they held out. You saw that shrewd trader that Red Arban was, who always seemed to
2: make the best deals. You have to make the best deal. We knew that they wanted to get rid of Pete. So give them two first rounds, but you can't go four years without a first round and you're a new team coming in. You just can't do that.
1: What do you think of the camaraderie that the players seem to show Sam, you know, everybody's played against each other in AAA and AAU when they get to the NBA. You got guys who are playing against each other, but they spend spending the night at each other's house before game time. And, you know, uh, Willis Reed said that when he played against the Celtics, he always walked to the half court and said, Mr. Russell, how are you today? But there seemed to be a different kind of fraternity between the players, even from one team to the other. It wasn't like that when you played, I don't think.
2: Well, no, it's a little bit different. Oscar Robinson is my frat brother. Okay. Bill Russell is my frat brother. We had a lot of frat brothers. We were capping out the size if you want to know. Every time we went to Cincinnati, Oscar's wife is named Yvonne. She cooked our pregame meal. We went to Oscar's house and had our pregame meal. That was Casey Jones, Bill Russell, and me. And we were friends until we went on the basketball court. Once we went on the basketball court, we didn't think anything about Oscar. No, no, no. He was not our friend anymore. Not our friend anymore. <laughs> no. In fact, Yvonne, his wife, stated one time we were together, she said, the next time that I feed you, Sam, and Casey, I'm going to put poison in your food. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was just a jest, but that's what happened. Yeah,
1: of course, of course.
2: The first black player to play a game in the NBA, Earl Lord, who became a coach of Detroit after Bill Russell, his wife, his first wife, Virginia, she used to cook our meal when we went to Detroit. But Earl knew that when he went on the court, he had a different uniform. It was not going to be good. And so that's the way we played. After the game, it was all over. Everything was forgotten. Will Chamberlain, I hated Will Chamberlain's mother's house many times. But on the court, I hated it. Now, you mentioned cooking,
1: and you said Detroit. Let me bring this up. Tell us about... The night you cooked Detroit for 51 points. How do you know that? I'm supposed to know a little something something when I talk to you now. Talk about that. The night you scored 51 (laughs) against
2: the You're so young. You're so young. (laughs) I I was out of the league when you came in by many years. But anyway. (laughs) No, anyway. Sometimes you get in that rhythm, I guess. And you feel unstoppable. And with the Celtics, if they see that you're hot, you're going to keep getting the ball until they do something. they got to make you stop. And our plays are so good, Gil, that it's hard to stop. And not only was 51 against Detroit, I got this great guard I heard about, Walt Frazier. I got 51 against him. And with his reasons, oh, I can't believe it. He probably wrote
1: a poem about it, though.
2: But <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all right. Sometimes you get in that groove. I didn't know that I was tied with Dominique Wilkins for most points in the seventh game of a playoffs. All right. Yeah, we still hold that record now. you got to realize this happened in 1964. So you're looking at 36-19, and 19, which is 55 years. 55 years ago, I scored something like 47 points in the seventh game of the playoffs. Wow. And Dominique Lucas scored 47 points in the playoffs. I look at mine differently. I didn't have any three points. That's right.
1: That's right. They talked about this six-four guard who was quick, and they called him by his nickname Shooter. So we obviously should have known what was going to happen because your nickname defined who you were, who you are. I want to just tell you, Sam Jones, it is a thrill and so entertaining to speak with you. And I hope that the folks who listen to black college sports and education will be listening to you and all of your stories that you have given us on this podcast. I hope we can call on you again and talk more stories about HBCUs, about black college athletes, about life in the NBA and the Celtics, because you have been just a delight and a thrill. And, and I just want to thank you for taking the time out to highlight who you are and what we do?
2: Well, you know, I haven't forgotten that you're the same guy who took me around to the mall when I was in Winston Salem, and you were at Wake Forest. <laughs> well, that's something I haven't forgotten. Perfect. And I, I gave a clinic up in the mall at Winston Salem.
1: Yes, indeed.
2: <laughs> that, that's Mr. been many, Mr. many years. That's many years many ago. Yeah, ago. Yes.
1: Mister Sam Jones. When these guys start talking about trying to get one ring and two ring and three rings. You and Mr. Russell can remind them that you don't have any more fingers to fit the rings that you have. Yeah, will leave this with you.
2: Okay. My first year, we lost because Bill Russell was hurt. Then, eight years later, we had won eight straight championships. And then, Russell took over as coach. And we played together for three years. We won two out of three those years. And we both left together. And this really makes them angry. And I says, Russell, the only reason you retired the same year I did is that you couldn't win without me. (laughs) 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 I just told him that, but it is great. great. We still speak to each other about three times a week, so that's nice. Well, Sam Jones,
1: thank you so much, and I look forward to talking to you another time on our podcast.
2: Hey, thanks to, to you both you and Tracy. Thanks a lot, Gil, and God bless. God bless you, too. Thank you.
1: We thank you so
2: much for listening to our
1: podcast. We've had as our guest tonight Mr. Sam Jones. He shared stories of his life, and we hope you enjoyed it all. Now, you join us next week when we're going to have more guests with interesting stories, conversations, and insights right here on our podcast. See you next week.
0: Thank you for tuning into the podcast. For more information about us, please visit our website at www.bcsportsfoundation.com Also, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at HBCU4Life That's HBCU, the number 4, Life To be a potential guest on our podcast contact Ed J. Hayes at ed.j.hayes at gmail.com Tune in next week for another amazing show